This, this, this is you. KUT. KUT, Austin. Stop. This is KUT. I'm Jennifer Staten. Texas author Ben Fountain covered the 2016 presidential campaign for the British newspaper The Guardian. And the same question kept coming up for him during and after that election. How did the United States reach the point where we are today? Fountain's Guardian assignment and some additional thoughts form his new book, Beautiful Country, Burn Again. Fountain told me he thinks the country has burned and then reinvented itself before the Civil War and Emancipation and then the Great Depression and the New Deal. His book's title implies we're close again. So, of course, I had to ask him that when we talked recently. I think the first burning and reinvention was the Civil War and Emancipation. And um, that was a dramatic reset of the freedom equation in the United States. I mean, the founding words of the country in the Declaration of Independence, all men created equal, all um, endowed with, you know, equal rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But obviously, there were vast numbers of Americans who weren't included in that formulation. Um, Equality was the principle, but it wasn't the lived reality of the country. There was not equal citizenship stature. Emancipation went was a significant step toward making the principle the lived reality of the country. But obviously, you know, it was very problematic for people of color. And, um, uh, you know, that work is still ongoing. I think the second reinvention happened with the Great Depression and the New Deal. And by that point, it had become clear that these new forces of industrial capitalism uh, were creating a new kind of servitude, a new kind of mass peonage um, among working people. Um, monopolies, uh, you know, finance, Wall Street, the big railroads, um, individuals had virtually, you know, no pa- virtually no power and very little agency, capacity for self-determination, you know, in that kind of society, industrial capitalism, unless, and Franklin Roosevelt recognized this, unless there is a robust regulation and oversight of, you know, monopoly of large-scale capitalism. And so thanks to the New Deal and the programs the New Deal ushered in and the framework of regulation over various industries, and also, um, you know, strengthening workers' rights to bargain collectively and form unions, um, that was a second reset of freedom in the United States. And um, the goal was to permit individuals to have a meaningful degree of agency and self-determination in their lives. And so I think the New Deal was another reinvention um, of America, another expansion of the equality principle into the lived life of the country, equal st- citizenship stature. So what that leads me to wonder, though, is so are we burning right now? Are we reinventing right now? If it's beautiful country burn again, where do you see us right now, having spent this time on the campaign trail really getting to know the country and seeing these politicians in action. 
not burning now, not burning yet, but I certainly have the feeling that there's a lot of dry tinder out there and drought conditions. And, um, uh, you know, you look at those first two reinventions, the Civil War and the New Deal, or the Civil War and, and Great Depression, those were existential crises for the United States. Um, and those were two points where this country had to decide, you know, whether it was going to be a democracy um, only in name, or would it continue to aspire to be a genuine democracy, um, and and a country that genuinely aspired to um, make the equality principle the lived life of the country. Um, I think you don't get those kinds of major reinventions of society unless an existential crisis prompts it. And I don't think we're at that point yet in our own time. I was thinking 2008, 2009, the financial crisis, I was thinking that could have been it. And certainly we were on, we were skirting the abyss of a genuine existential crisis. Um, I mean, the global financial system was about to melt down. Um, those con- those conditions um, are still in effect, and I think if anything, um, things have gotten worse uh, since that since the crash of two thousand eight. So um, we're not there yet. It's we aren't burning yet, but um, and I hope we don't burn. I'm not advocating for something like this, but I think um, conditions seem ripe for a a similar existential crisis and reinvention. How did we get to the point then when you said we were on the verge, maybe in 2008, 2009, the financial crisis, we kind of came came to the abyss, we didn't fall in. How did we then get to a point between then and now of, of still being on the brink? As you say, there's a lot of tender, we're pretty close. Why are we still that close? Nothing changed. Um, uh, the power structure emerged from the crash of 2008 intact. And there were a few cosmetic changes, um, you know, like Dodd-Frank and uh, to, to the financial regulatory system, but those are being rolled back. The big banks have gotten bigger. The bankers are making more money than ever. Um, the political parties, uh, they certainly look to me like they're as corrupt as ever and, and unresponsive to working people's needs. Um, so there was that tremendous upheaval in 2008 and 2009, but, and President Obama, obviously a Democrat, was elected. Um, he had um, Democratic majorities in both houses of Congress. In the Senate, it was it was a slender majority, but there were no fundamental changes. Obama was elected as a transformational president, but he really governed as a transactional president. There, there were no there was no attempt to reinvent American society to, um, to, you know, provide for more self-determination and agency for working people. So we had two candidates in 2016 who promised some kind of gargantuan change. Donald Trump said he was going to drain the swamp. Washington wouldn't be the same again. Bernie Sanders had a long list of reforms that a lot of people on the progressive far left really wanted to implement. He didn't win. He didn't even get the Democratic nomination. And Donald Trump hasn't drained the swamp. Right. 
So we, we still haven't changed. Oh, absolutely not. Um, but people are hungry for change. And um, I, uh, I think it's obvious that there's a great deal of frustration, confusion, and anger um, among the population at large. Um, when Trump said the system is rigged, that was a very powerful truth that people were hearing because that had been the lived experience for you know a vast swath of the population the last 25 or 30 years. Yeah, we're working harder than ever. Um, it's getting harder than ever to make ends meet, but American productivity has never been stronger, and people at the top are just getting richer and richer and richer. I mean, if that's not the definition of a rigged system, I don't know. And so Trump and Bernie Sanders were speaking a very powerful truth when they talked about the system is rigged. So this book, Beautiful Country, Burn Again, came out of your assignment from The Guardian, the British newspaper, to go out on the road, cover the 2016 presidential campaign. And I want to hear a little bit about your decision to do that and then doing that. When did you accept that assignment? What did the candidate field look like when you said, yeah, I, this this sounds good. I want to do this. Yeah, David Taylor at The Guardian um he approached me in November of 2015 and with this, you know, offer. And I said, give me a couple of weeks. So we went into December and my wife and one of my close friends said, don't do it. Why? Because that world is just so nasty. And, um, and uh, you know, as a fiction writer, I have flown below the radar of, you know, just, you know, Certain certain parts of the of the public sphere are just vicious and vile, and um, and uh, you know they said, well, if you go into this, you better be prepared to. Well, I'm not on Twitter or Facebook, so I don't hear all that stuff. So, you know, it, it was all the same to me. But um, the candidate field, there were still three Democratic candidates, and um, and there was a. Uh, uh, you know, small army of Republican candidates, probably upwards of 20 at that point. Um, but Trump was, there was a moment in November, early December, when Ben Carson, his national, his national poll numbers briefly topped Trump's. But other than that, Trump had been leading since the end of the summer. So you hit the campaign trail. Was it vicious and vile? Um, well, no. That wasn't my experience. Um, I would, I was, I was basically a dilettante reporter. I would, um, I would fly in someplace, hang out for a few days, um, you know, check out the vibe, and uh, then I would fly off and I'd go back to my office in Dallas and and try to pull my thoughts together and write something, you know, that that might be worthwhile. Um, so for me, it was, it it, it was. I mean, I was not one of those journalists who was out there in the trenches every day, you know, doing the day-to-day, very important day-to-day work of reporting. Um, I had the great luxury of going out for short periods of time, um, you know, doing my research, sniffing the air, and then going back and doing these, um, you know, pretty deep dives into what I hope were things that might explain help explain the current moment, how we had gotten to this point. So your description of now President Trump and candidate Trump at a rally in Iowa, I just want to read a little bit of the description and get you to talk about it. You're writing about Trump and you write, 
The intimacy he creates is astonishing. And then a couple of sentences later, the crowd is seduced. And who among us isn't happy to be seduced when it's done so expertly and with such sincerity? What was it like to see then candidate Trump in a in a room, in a hall, in an auditorium with supporters? How was he with them? It was a love fest. It, it was an extraordinary thing to see. He, um, there's no question that, that he has a raw magnetism and, um, and he deploys it expertly in those situations. Um, he, he comes out, he's confiding, he's jokey. He, um, he's a master of the quick aside, you know, the confiding aside. Um, he, uh, I mean, he's always, you know, shouting, giving a shout out to people in the audience. Um, and and they were ready. I mean, at this point, at the end of Iowa, this rally that I went to, um, he was their guy. People were primed to vote for him. At least, you know, it's a self-selecting audience, partly. But um, but I think he sold a lot of people that day. He, it was just an extraordinary display of raw political talent. So raw political talent, it, was it purely style over substance? Because as you point out in the book, his actual policies and things he, that he described would not benefit a lot of the folks who were in the audience. I mean, it was it was a gaseous blather. Um, he uh, there there was there were very little specifics as far as policy. I think the wall was the most specific he ever got. And didn't he admit at one point to someone that he would bring that up in speeches when he felt like he was losing the crowd or losing his way? He just would talk about the wall. In a conversation with the editors of the New York Times um, is documented. Yeah, he said, well, whenever I feel like the crowd's getting away from me a little bit, I just say the wall, we're going to build the wall, and they go crazy. It works the same every time. And so he talked about the wall, and then he said, you know, everybody's telling me you can't get Mexico to pay for the wall. Well, any businessman knows there are five different ways to get Mexico to pay for the wall. And then blah, 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 he's on to something else, Common Core or illegal immigrants. or, or. And so, you know, nothing in the way of specifics, but um, a real showman in terms of effective spectacle and rhetoric. So there's a theme that goes back to those two burnings and reinventions that we were discussing before. And that is a part of much of the campaign season, which is race and racism. And Trump would bring up the wall. And that's talking about keeping people out of the United States who are from Mexico. How did he touch that part of our country's thinking that is still there for some people? You mean the racist? Yes. You know, the 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 racist chunk of the American character. Um he did it as effectively as any politician in American history, I think. And he calibrated his message perfectly to the times. Um George Wallace obviously took a similar tack when he ran for president in the 60s and 70s. Although by the time he got to his campaigns in the 1970s, he was starting to temper his message. But at his high point in 1968, when he was a third-party candidate and won 
four or five states and about 40 electoral votes, he was still very much a fire-breathing segregationist. Um, he did. He wasn't able to muster that critical mass of support that really would thrust him into contention. Um, Trump did Wallace one better. Somehow he managed to do what Wallace was on the cusp of doing, perhaps, or not on the cusp, but made a serious run at. But Trump calibrated his message, um, I think, to fit in neatly with the an- economic anxiety and the cultural anxiety of mainstream white America or a big chunk of mainstream white America. And so the way he weaved you know, the racist thread in with you know, economic anxiety and cultural anxiety, like you, you know, mainstream white America, you are the real America. Everyone else is just, they're an appendage to the real America. One way to think about it, try to think about it, is a bit of a chicken and egg. So did he come along at a time when there's still this racism existent alive and well in the United States? Or did his entrance on the scene start to pull out a racism that was either on its way out or buried? I think that uh, it's always been there um, throughout the entirety of American history, going back to, you know, colonial times, conquistador times. Um, And the first people of color arrived in the United States um, in bondage in 1619 at Jamestown. And so the history, it goes back far and it's deep. Um, I think uh, I think Trump, he tapped into something that's always been there. I think what made it especially effective in 2016 was the cumulative anxiety and confusion of a critical mass of America. And, I mean, when we feel threatened, confused, um, we feel insecure— I think we default to tribal instincts, and um, I think he played that dynamic beautifully. So I want to pose a question to you that you actually pose in the book, and here is what you write, a question that you pose. What is it about the American character that allows the long con of our politics to go on and on, electing crooks, racists, bullies, hate-mongering preachers, corporate bagmen, and bald-faced liars. Not always, but often. The history is damning. We must, on some level, want what they're offering. Do we want that? Did you see people when you were out who seemed to want that? Well, okay, a con. A con is, it's a deception, And for the con to work, it takes willing buy-in on the part of the mark. And there is, there's, there's an aspect always in the con of wrongdoing. And the mark has to buy into that wrongdoing, has to be a willing participant. Um, I think, you know, Americans, like, you know, people in every country everywhere, we're susceptible to to easy fixes, to having, um, uh, you know, some of our worst instincts appealed to in the name of, you know, instant gratification, 
um, or or easy money. Um, I think um, we uh, there are certain prejudices and predilections in, in in you know the American character that make us susceptible to hucksters, con men, um, you know people who who are offering you know a smooth line, but really nothing behind it. I mean, Joe McCarthy in the early 1950s was an example. He was selling, you know, this virulent form of anti-communism that destroyed a lot of lives. Um, Papio Daniel in Texas, Huey Long in Louisiana. Um, I mean, Trump on the camp t- campaign trail, it would it would take only the slightest exertion of critical thinking, you know, to realize that there was a, a huge gap between what he was offering, what he said he was going to deliver, and what he was actually offering in terms of specifics and, um, and you know, ways to accomplish what he said he was going to accomplish. I mean, it was, it was amazingly vague and vaporous. Um, it, I mean, not only was, was there very little that was concrete, it wasn't even coherent. I mean, if you just look at what he said about minimum, the minimum wage, I mean, he spun in every direction on the minimum wage. It just depended what day it was. So that anyone would put faith in Trump saying, in in Trump doing what he said he was going to do, I mean, it really required willing buy-in on the part of the listener. Now, you write in the book that the Democratic Party helped put Trump in the White House, you believe. How is that so? 35 years of neoliberal policies promoted by the Democratic establishment, um, beginning in the early 1980s with um, the so-called New Democrats, which led to the Democratic Leadership Council. And these were movements within the party to pull the party more toward the center and center-right, a more centrist, business-oriented um, uh, slant to the party's platforms. Um, I think by by abandoning large chunks of its traditional constituency, and for most of the 20th century, um, the people who've relied on the Democratic Party to advocate for their interests and look out for them, they've been immigrants, poor people, working class, the middle class. And over time, the Democratic Party shed, you know, in fact, if not in rhetoric, you know, significant parts of those constituencies. Um, And you look at it during the presidency of Clinton. I mean, uh, he continued with deregulation of, of the financial and banking regulatory structure that the New Deal had ushered in and that had led to 50 years of st- stability in in um, American finance. Um, in his platform in 1992, for the first time in over 100 years, there was no anti-monopoly plank in the Democratic Party's platform. In other words, the Democratic Party was, it was buying into the Chicago School of Economics, supply-side economics, um, free markets as the ultimate arbiters of what's good and efficient in American society. And so Democrats, certainly in terms of pocketbook issues, economic issues, there was less and less of a distinction between Democrats and Republicans. 
And so you look at 35 years of that, and um, nobody has been looking out for the working class or middle class. People are, you know, beleaguered, frustrated, confused, and scared. And when they don't see a great deal of difference in in their economic lives between when Republicans are, are in power and Democrats are in power, that leaves, that is ripe territory for someone like Donald Trump to, you know, enter into the scene. So you say people are beleaguered, tired, and frustrated, and scared, and what we keep choosing looks a lot like what we've chosen before. Having spent time on the campaign trail, having thought about this and synthesized all of this, what do we do now, then, to have or make choices that aren't the same as before, or choices that might affect real kind of change, whatever that change may be that voters want? I think um, politicians need to get real. And a corollary to that is we need to be electing politicians who are real. Um, I mean, democracy takes a, a certain level of engagement and participation on the part of the citizenry. And um, it requires some level of critical thinking, some level of, you know, like paying attention, trying to inform ourselves about the reality around us. And that's not easy. And I think these days, with so many different kinds of media and so many media agendas coming at us, it may be harder than ever. And so we have to be, we have to be smart and alert. Um, and, and, you know, we have to bring a certain degree of skepticism to what's being put in front of us. Um, if we're going to do our job and start, you know, selecting people who are really going to represent people's interests. I'm thinking back to the novel you wrote, Billy Flynn's Long Halftime Walk, and the spectacle and the show and the football and the cheerleaders and the fireworks and all this stuff. And I can't, I mean, I can't, there's overlap here. I mean, that's a fiction book. This is nonfiction, but there, <laughs> there's overlap there. I mean, there are aspects of 2016 that felt very showy spectacle entertainment that we want to consume and not yeah. think. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's easy to get seduced by the spectacle by the bright lights and the big noises and and the stirring talk that appeals to, you know, our very real anger and frustration and confusion. It spoke, Trump spoke to that, you know, in a very effective way, and Bernie Sanders did too. Um, and their constituencies overlapped quite a bit. I mean, there was extraordinary polling being done throughout the primary season about the overlap between Sanders and, and Trump's um supporters. So, yeah, um, I think, um, you know, in our media age, in the age of the fantasy industrial complex, as I like to call it, I think it is as difficult, if not more difficult than ever for us to, to discern what is real, what are the facts of a situation. You know, I, I mentioned your novel before, and this is a work of nonfiction, but you bring to this nonfiction work a very creative and descriptive style. And I'm wondering if I could get you to read just a, a, a brief passage. And it's, it's a description of an event in Iowa, or actually this is a description of, of Ted Cruz speaking at an event. And I could just get you to read that brief 
brief portion. Okay, this is um, Ted Cruz is at a small event in Iowa, um, a small town called Hubbard, Iowa, and it was in a middle school cafeteria, and there were probably 100 people in the room. And Steve King, the Iowa congressman, has just introduced Cruz. The candidate, Ted Cruz, begins with lavish props to Steve King. Steve King every day stands up and fights for the Constitution. He fights for freedom, Cruz intones in his righteous warble. Every day, Steve King crawls over broken glass with a knife between his teeth, fighting for the men and, win- men and women of Iowa. This is a fair example of the Cruz rhetorical style, which tends toward the graphic, the violent, the overstimulated, a kind of peewee's playhouse of gaudy apocalypticism, the faithful ever at war with the armies of darkness. In Cruz's world, we are always standing at the edge of the abyss. We are charged with pulling this nation back from the cliff, and the stakes have never been higher, and we are perpetually running out of time. We're here this morning for something a lot more important than politics, he informs us in urgent, breathy tones of preacherly sanctimony, his voice dropping as it nears the end of every thought, digging for the tremble, the hushed vibrato of ultimate virtue. You'd think he gargles twice a day with a cocktail of high fructose corn syrup and holy roller snake oil. His tone and cadence take after the saccharine blather of the great Christian pitchmen of radio and TV, the hucksters who mastered the catch in the throat, the tremulous quaver and gulp, because as every pro knows, that's where the money is. Well, and from your description, Senator Cruz certainly was appealing to that sort of the the fear, the uncertainty, concern out there. But he didn't he didn't connect in the same way as Donald Trump. What what was the difference there? I mean, obviously, they're two different men, two different styles, but. What was his connection with those audiences like, and why didn't he quite click the same way? Well, Trump had mojo no other politician running in 2016 had, and that was he had been an honest-to-God celebrity for the last 25 or 30 years in American life, going back to the early 80s. And he had had his own hit TV show in which he was the star and starred as himself for 14 seasons on primetime TV. So in in the age of, you know, the fantasy industrial complex, who what politician can compete with that? After the process of covering the campaign, writing the columns, hearing the politicians, meeting meeting people, meeting the candidates, is this book ultimately a hopeful forward-looking book? It's obviously a book of history, but how do you, how did you walk away from this entire process? Well, the Guardian pieces and then this book, this is me trying to figure out why things are the way they are. What brought us to this point? And, you know, I I finished the book with a lot of questions. I still have a lot of questions. Um, I don't think so much in terms of optimism or pessimism. Um, it's more I'm working the problem. I'm, I mean, I'm interested in this. It feels, it feels vital to me, crucial to me, just for my own sanity and, and, and sense of peace. You know, if I'm ever going to have any peace in myself, um, I want to try to figure out what's going on. Um, you know, 
I think we are due for a major crisis in American life. I think we're going to be faced with a pivotal choice in the national life of whether we are going to continue to aspire and try to be a genuine democracy where the principle of equality becomes more and more the lived reality of the country, or it will become this kind of ersatz democracy where we have the trappings of elections, but um, the real power resides elsewhere. Um, And I think we're pretty much there right now. Um, I think the plutocracy, um, just, you know, the oceans of dark money they can pour into elections um, really tips the scale. Not completely, but um, I think any populist candidate, popular candidate, has an uphill battle. When I do think about hopefulness or lack of, um, I take comfort in the fact that America is various. It is never all one thing or all the other. It is too many different things. And for, I think, at least to this point, for one person or one movement to herd you know, the American nation into a single lane. And so I think just our sheer diversity and energy and, um, and the vitality that new immigrants bring and, and that new cultures bring and that, you know, rethinking what is the American culture, what is the American character, what is, it, what is the American identity. I think as long as there's a vital core to that exploration, I think there's a good deal of hope to be had for the country. So we're not too far down the road to come back from dark money. And I mean, are we are we too far down that road? Can we still pull ourselves back to a democracy that is a real democracy? So many things will have to change in the structure of our politics, the way campaigns are financed, um, how influence is purchased and exerted you know, in the making of laws in this country. I think Bernie Sanders, when he said, I am calling for a political revolution, that was not a rhetorical line. I think for everything to happen in American life or for the things that need to happen in American life, it's all going to have to happen at once. And so I I do think it will take something um, in the nature of a revolution for us to get our republic back. Ben Fountain is the author of Beautiful Country, Burn Again. Ben, thank you so much for your time and your thinking on this. Thank you, Jennifer. It was a pleasure.